Uh, we're doing a study through First and Second Samuel, First Chronicles. We're entitling the study, The Days of the King. And this is part of our overall study that we're doing in our Sunday school time where we've been doing a survey of the Old Testament. So we're in lesson eight today, and we're going to start seeing a shift towards David. If you remember, the beginning of Samuel, we talked about the rising of a prophet. So we saw Hannah, the birth of Samuel. Samuel being basically confirmed as prophet and priest before the Lord. And then we also, excuse me, prophet and judge before the Lord. And then we saw the rising of Saul, the choice of Saul, because that's what the people wanted. And then the narrator has gone to great lengths to show us not everything about Saul's reign, but enough for us to see that he was not a good choice for king. And so now we see, because of his disobedience, his lack of regard for the Lord, we're going to see that basically the text shifts to another, and that's where we see the anointing of David. Now, in our study, we've also said that we're going to be looking at First Chronicles. And the reason why, rather than just doing a study of Chronicles on its own, is because there is some overlap. And we're doing a survey of the Old Testament looking at God, his people, the Jews, and the Messiah, which would be Jesus. And we want to kind of overlap a little bit so that we can get the greater story of what we're wanting to see here with our Old Testament survey of these books and looking at Israel. So today, we're going to start off for the first time in First Chronicles. And again, we're not going to read all of these passages. We may refer to some of them as we go along. And then we're going to get to 1 Samuel chapter 16 as well. With First Chronicles, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9. So we're going to focus first, excuse me, chapters 1 to 9. So we're going to focus on that many chapters because basically the first nine chapters of First Chronicles is genealogies. So let's go through this together. First of all, when we get to chapter 1, the genealogies are going to focus on the patriarchs. The patriarchs. And so if you'll notice, it'll be up on your screen when you're watching, you're going to see that chapter 1, verses 1 to 54, is all of the patriarchs. Now, when it mentions them here, it's going to mention some that you're going to say, well, wait a minute, they're not patriarchs. Well, they're from that patriarchal period, and the chronicler wants you to know this information. So we see Adam in verses 1 to 4. We then see Jephthah in verses 5 through 7. Ham, verses 8 through 16, his descendants. Shem, verses 17 through 27. And these are the three sons of Noah. Then we see Abraham mentioned in verses 28 through 34, and then the descendants of Esau in verses 35 through 54. Then that brings us to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is very interesting, is focused on Judah, okay? Focused on Judah. So when you come to chapter 2, it then focuses on the the primary sons of Judah, who most of which, two of which, were killed by the Lord for their sin. 
We see that in verses 1 to 4. Then we see Perez and Zerah in verses 5 through 8. Now remember, these are the sons, the twin sons who were born to Tamar. And that story is also in Genesis, who she basically deceived her father-in-law into uh, basically a sexual relationship to produce these children because he didn't do right by her. And uh, so that story is in Genesis. I would encourage you to go back and look at that. Verses 9 through 41, we see Hezron. We see Caleb, the descendants of Caleb, in verses 42 through 55. David then is mentioned in his descendants in verses 1 to 24 of chapter 3. And then we're going to get to some further generations of Judah in chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. Now, let me just stop for a moment because... It's in chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. There's a very well-known passage of Scripture that is mentioned. And as soon as I read it, you're going to know what I'm talking about. And it refers to one of the descendants of Judah. And so I want you to notice with me, if you look at chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. You don't need to read these. I'll just read them to you. Now Jabez was more honorable than his brother's, and his mother called his name Jabez, because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Now, some of you would be like, wow, yeah, I remember that. Wasn't there a book, George? Yep, 20 years ago, uh, an author by the name of Bruce Wilkerson, at that time he was the president of Walk Through the Bible, produced a little book called The Prayer of Jabez. We even went through that study here in our church in Sunday school 18 years ago. And this was a very good little book talking about your spiritual life and talking about the prayer of Jabez and how he can guide you in your spiritual life. The problem was, this is the problem with all things in Christianity, is, is that people don't necessarily read the book. We say, I read the book, George. Yeah, you maybe read the book, but you missed what the book was saying because a lot of Christians ended up praying the prayer of Jabez like it was some kind of magical incantation of blessing. It actually comes out of what I would like to refer to that everybody is a prosperity theologian in some way because we feel that God owes us a blessing. And so you pray that prayer for blessing. And so businessmen were praying that prayer for God's enlargement of their businesses and their bank accounts and so forth. Now, here's the point. Why did I bring that up? Sounds like you're on a hobby horse here, George. Well, this is the point of narratives. Okay, remember what I told you about narratives. Narratives are basically the stories of historical things that God wants you to see to point to him about what it is that he wants you to see. So in this particular instance, the prayer of Jabez, what you see there really is his prayer and how God blessed him because of his prayer. Now, what can we do with all prayers from the scripture? Well, we can learn things from them but praying them does not necessarily produce what it did 
in, for instance, in Jabez's life. Praying them is basically a model of prayer. So when you look at the things that Jabez is praying here, there's actually four things. Bless me, enlarge my territory, keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. All of those things are found in the scripture in other prayers and in other principles. Those are things that we should be praying and asking God to do in our lives. It's not a magical prayer for you to pray so that God can bless you in materially. And that's what a lot of people have taken it as. Now, let's continue on with what we're looking at here. So we saw Judah. Further generations are discussed in chapter 4. Then that brings us to chapter 4, verses 24 through 43, where we see Simeon. Simeon is mentioned, the tribe of Simeon. Then we come to the eastern tribes. Now remember, the eastern tribes were those tribes who wanted to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. There were two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And remember, they, they talked to Moses. Moses was upset with them at first because they looked at all that land there and they thought this was good land that they took from the Amorites and they wanted to stay there. But they also promised then to go over with the rest of the tribes to take the promised land. And they did that. They fulfilled their obligation. So what we see here in chapter 5, verses 1 to 26, is basically the genealogies of these tribes. So we see... Reuben is mentioned in chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Gad, chapter 5, verses 11 through 17. Then there's a pause to kind of reflect upon the victories of the eastern tribes. We see that in chapter 5, verses 18 through 22. And then the half-tribe of Manasseh is mentioned, the genealogies there in verses 23 through 26. We then come to chapter 6 where we focus on the genealogy of Levi. And this is 81 verses long, folks. So here's what we see. In verses 1 through 30, we see the descendants of Levi. Now, because this is a chronicler written sometime, probably around after the time of their return from the exile, they refer to the Levitical musicians. We see that in verses 31 through 48. Then we see the Aaronic priests, the priests of Aaron, and we see that in verses 49 through 53. And then in 54 through 81, it refers to the various Levitical settlements throughout Israel. Remember, they were to spread out among Israel and to guide them and teach them in the Lord. Then we come to the northern tribes, which we find in chapter 7, verses 1 through 40. So Issachar is mentioned in verses 1 to 5, Benjamin, verses 6 through 12, Nephtali, verse 13, Manasseh, this is the other half of Manasseh, verses 14 through 19, then Ephraim, which is mentioned in verse 10 through 29, and Asher, which is mentioned in verses 30 through 40. We see, again, Benjamin mentioned in chapter 8, verses 1 through 40. Then it's very interesting, again, because this is written after the exile, the focus of the chronicler is on the people of Jerusalem. And that's in chapter 9, verses 1 to 34. So in verses 1 to 9, it talks about the genealogies there of the political leaders, the priests, 
verses 10 through 13, the Levites, verses 14 through 16, the gatekeepers are mentioned. Verses 28, excuse me, verse 17 through 27, and then there are others who serve various roles there that are mentioned in verses 28 through 34. And then finally, in chapter 9, verses 35 through 34, we see the genealogy of Saul. Saul. So now, let's get back to 1 Samuel. You say, whoa, George, why are we doing this? Why are, why are we stopping here? We only got through the first nine chapters. Well, when you come to chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles, it starts off with the death of Saul. And we're not at that point in our survey. We're not at that point where we're dealing with the death of Saul. We still have to wait till we get through 1 Samuel. So let's get back to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 16 today. And we're going to look at the anointing. The anointing of David. The anointing of David. So, first thing I want you to notice when we look in that first section there, it's divided into two sections, actually. We have, first of all, in uh, verses 1 through 13, the anointing of David, and then we see David entering into Saul's service in verse 14. So when we come to that first section of verses 1 to 13, the Lord calls Samuel to take a horn of oil and to go to Bethlehem. Actually, the text is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear that God is saying to him, how long are you going to grieve Saul? How long are you going to weep over him? Get up, get a flask of oil. I have selected somebody for you to anoint. So take a horn of oil with you, okay? And the Lord has chosen for himself a king among the sons of Jesse. So among the sons of Jesse, there is somebody that the Lord has chosen. That the Lord has chosen. Now, I think this is interesting. Before they selected a king, it was kind of fell in line with what the, what the people wanted. And God said, give them what they want. And he had a hand in it. But in this instance, the people have what they want now. But God says, I'm going to pick somebody else. And so here we see he very clearly is choosing who the next king is. And he sends Samuel to anoint this one. And he's choosing him from among the sons of Jesse. Now, of course, here's the thing. Samuel's concerned. He's concerned that Saul will kill him, so the Lord directed Samuel to go sacrifice there. It's only natural that Samuel would be feeling this way, because he's the one who's been telling Saul, Saul, the Lord's done with you. He's ripping your kingdom away from you like you rip a garment, and he's giving it to your neighbor, someone who's after his own heart. And so he's been communicating that to Saul, that his kingdom is done, and here's Saul, he's the king, He's just not going to let Samuel go anoint somebody else. That becomes a challenge to his reign. So Samuel is concerned that as soon as Saul finds out he's going to go anoint somebody with oil, Saul's going to kill him. Okay? Saul's going to kill him. So the Lord says, take an animal with you, a cow, and say that you're going to make a sacrifice at Bethlehem. 
a cover for Samuel to protect him against the possibility of Saul finding out. So he makes his way to Bethlehem and he invites Jesse and his sons to the feast. Typically after the sacrifice, there would be a feast, a sacrificial feast. And when he does that, Jesse basically presents his sons and here's what happens. And he assumes that the oldest, Eliab, is the chosen one. He assumes that Eliab is the chosen one. And we see that here. And uh, look at what it says in verse 6. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So he sees this strapping young man coming up and he says, Wow, this is the guy. This has to be the Lord's anointed. Well, the Lord rejects Eliab and tells Samuel not to look at, that he looks at the heart, not the appearance. Look at what it says there. Verse 7, chapter 16, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now let me just take a moment to address something here. You know, I've been a believer now, this is 2020, I've been a believer now 35 years. My background is in the Independent Baptist. And through the years, I have been, it's been communicated, and I shamefully have been one to communicate that you needed to dress your best for the Lord. And I used to hear that all the time and still do from some folks. And I'm just going to be honest with you, that has no basis in the Bible. That really comes down to your personal preference or your church's preference. Now, I can tell you that the Bible very clearly says here that God doesn't look at the outward appearance and notice what it says, like men do. So who are we dressing up for, folks? Men. Here's the other thing. Well, wait a minute, George. If you were to appear before the queen or if you were to appear before the president, you'd be dressing your best. Yes, it's required to. But not with the Lord. Two different things. All right, so... Here it says that God looks what? At the heart. Now, long ago, we established here at our church that it didn't matter how you came. What mattered is that you were coming to seek Jesus. Because here's the thing. I've lost track now. But I can tell you that I continually hear, in fact, I just heard this just a week ago, someone saying to me, that they didn't go to church because they couldn't afford the clothes. They couldn't afford the clothes. Now, my question is, you can sit there and say, you need to dress your best for Jesus, but are you willing to accept the fact that that might actually be hindering people from coming to Jesus? Something to think about. I had to reflect on that as I thought, hear about this passage. Let's go on. 
Next thing I want you to see here. Samuel inquires if there is anyone, any, any more sons since the Lord did not choose any of the others. So all of the boys, and he had lots of boys, all of the boys of Jesse appear before Samuel, but God doesn't pick any of them. And so it's got Samuel scratching his head saying, whoa, wait, wait a minute now, hold on, Lord. Hold on, wait a minute, Jesse, is this all your boys? Isn't there, there's got to be another son here. The Lord's not picking any of these. And he knows that the Lord sent him to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Well, Jesse said his youngest son was tending sheep and Samuel called for him. So you, you can almost picture this, okay? You can almost picture, hey, Jesse, do you have any more boys? Is this all of them? Oh, you know, there's that, there's the youngest. He's, uh, you know what? He's not ready to come to this. We've got him tending the sheep. And Samuel says, hey, we're not going to sit down to eat until I see him. Okay? Until I see him. You call him. And so he called for him. And they brought him out of the field to the feast. So you're talking about a little bit of time here. Okay? A little bit of time getting that boy to the feast. And when David made his appearance, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint him with oil. So when this boy shows up, God speaks to Samuel at that moment and said, this is him. This is the kid. This is the guy I want you to, to anoint. Now it's interesting because if you read, like for instance, the New King James, the Old King James would be the same. It would basically describe David here as being ruddy. And a lot of people wonder, what in the world does that mean that he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking? What does ruddy mean, George? Well, can I tell you what ruddy means? Ruddy means red. Red. What? Was he a red-skinned person? No, he was a suntanned young man, which would make sense if you're out in the sun all day tending what? Sheep. That's what's, refer what's made reference of here. So the Lord basically says, this is the one, tells him to anoint him. And then when he's anointed with oil, I think it's very significant. The writer records that the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now, let me just stop. This is a significant thing in the Old Testament. Because basically what it is saying here is that the Spirit of God came upon David at that moment of anointing and stayed with him from that time on. Isn't that significant? You don't see that very often here in the, in, in the Old Testament Scripture. Because look at what it says. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, verse 13, and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. He was a spirit-empowered man from that day forward of his anointing. And that's going to be significant for you and I when we consider David's life later on. Even in the midst of his mistakes, God's spirit was still with him. Still with him. So now we come to verse 14, which is the second part of chapter 16. And it talks about David entering into Saul's service. Not the way you would think, 
but it's very important. So, first of all, the writer in verse 14 records that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. I think it's significant that you see here that the writer is saying that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Basically, remember what he said, God said earlier, I'm done with him, and the Spirit departs from him. The Spirit departs from him. Here's the next thing. An evil spirit was permitted by the Lord to torment Saul. Now, when you look at the passage, you might be saying, well, it was this spirit came from God. Well, no, no, evil spirits, yes, God's ultimately the one who is in control, and he's the one who created them. But he permitted this, he permitted this spirit to torment Saul. Now, if you want to talk about the permitting thing, you just simply need to go to Job chapter 1 and 2 and see the Lord permitting Satan to touch Job. Here we see that the narrator is telling us that the Spirit of God departed from Saul and God basically permitted an evil spirit, it's called a distressing spirit, to torment Saul. So he starts having some problems, okay? And we're going to see as we go along in the text that these problems are very severe problems. He's got some severe mental health issues that are beginning to happen here. So what happens is, if you read, continue reading on in verse 15 and so forth, they must have been pretty wise at this time. His servants advised that a skilled musician be found to play for Saul. So basically they said, you know what? The best thing we can do for him is that when he gets in these moods or when he's, he's under the influence of this distressing spirit, we need to bring in somebody who will play music for him, who's very skilled, who will help him. And so what, that's what they advised. So someone recommended David to be chosen as the musician. So somebody in the court of the king obviously must have been near Bethlehem or something and was able to hear of David or hear David and realized that he should be the one who should be chosen to be the musician. And I think it's interesting that uh, when you look at verse 18, one of the servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem, and listen to what it says, who is skilled in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So he's talking about David's all-around character and that he can play music, that he can play music. So Saul then sent word to Jesse that he required David. So basically, so, so, okay, let's get this guy, if he can do it, he basically sends word to Bethlehem and says, I require your youngest son, Je Jesse, I require him to come. Send me David. Send me David. And back then, you know, it's not that way now. But back then, when the king told you to do something, you did it. You sent your boy. And that's what happens here. So Jesse sent David with an offering. Basically, he's making an offering to the king. He sends him 
with, look at what it says, and Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. Wow. So again, making an offering to the king. And here's what it says. And he played for Saul when he was tormented. So basically, whenever Saul was tormented, and you could see that he obviously was, they would bring David in and have him play skillfully for Saul to help him in the midst of his torment. Now, folks, that brings us to the end of chapter 16 and the introduction of David to Saul. So next week, we're going to start seeing David starting to come more and more to the forefront. And it begins with that classic story that you and I know from children's Sunday school, David and Goliath. And so we're going to look at that next week, starting with chapter 17. And we're going to see, really, the relationship starting out well with Saul, but it will then turn sour, and we'll see that later on.